Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Welcome to a Joy podcast from LGBTQIA plus community radio station Joy 94.9. For more information and tons of other podcasts, head to joy.org.au. Our next guest in the studio. Yes. Sitting with us, we have Dr. Jane Eckert, who's here to talk to us about Centre 5 as the curator of a new exhibition at the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery. Thanks for joining us, Jane. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) Pleasure. So, Jane, I I warned you before you came in, we usually do a little bit of a background on who we're talking to so our listeners have a bit of scope. What can you tell us about your entry into the art scene and how you got to where you are today? Uh, Sure. So, I'm an art historian, which I don't know if they come on very often into this program. I know you normally speak to artists and curators. Yeah, Yeah, we occasionally have the art historian. So, I I studied at the University of Queensland and University of Sydney, Um, um, came out as a fully-fledged art historian, put that on my passport application and thought, oh, I don't even know what one is, but I am an art (laughs) historian now. (laughs) Went off overseas and I worked in art auctions um, in Ireland for eight years. Whoa. Yeah. And how, how was that? Mm. What, what experience did you have there? Your Ireland. Yeah. You, you don't expect it, but, but Ireland went through a renaissance, didn't it, That's about right. 20 years ago? Well, I was there at the height of what they called the Celtic Tiger economic boom. So there was lots of cash floating around yeah. being spent on art. It and was pretty lot, exciting. And a lot of Europeans yeah. were moving there, weren't yep, they? Yep, yeah, yep, yep. It was a very mobile population, but still quite a small country. So you got to very quickly know it felt like every single person in Ireland and we all drank in the same bars and we all <laughs> it was a very did. social scene it was yeah, fun a yeah. lot of fun and and what mm. what about the art uh, that you mm. were um, dealing with there you know like well, where was it from was it um, uh, Irish art it was or? all Irish and a bit of British right um, so I had to very uh, it was a deep dive when I arrived mm. and had to very rapidly brush up on my Irish art history which funnily enough had never been taught in Australia <laughs> um, and whilst I was there I was asked to do all sorts of funny things but um, one job I was asked to do whilst working full-time in the auction house was to teach a course a night course at University College Dublin on the history of European sculpture from the 18th century to the present day which was an enormous subject and again it was a deep dive I had no background in the topic so it was really it was a 12-week seminar yeah. course and and, and uh, what what did was, you cover you know give us a, an example of well some. sort of neoclassical sculpture like you know canova antonio canova um and then you know right up to sort of installation art um you know we went right up until the present day the final week was on contemporary irish sculpture right but it was really a, as a result of sort of preparing that 12-week course that I thought, hmm, I really wanted to do a bit more work on this uh-huh. and I wanted to come back to Australia. So right. I spent about a year reading up on Australian sculpture whilst still in Ireland 
and realised that there was this group, Centre 5, who were really interesting, um, whose origins were sort of European, and I, I wanted to sink my, my sort of teeth, as it were, into a subject that was yeah. not entirely Australian. I didn't want to sort of pigeonhole myself as an Australian art historian, um, and because they had these really strong European connections Yeah, well, they would have because roots. of the era, wasn't it? Because it's more 50s, 60s, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, nearly all of them actually studied in Europe before yep. World War II. Yep. or during the war. Um, so, it, yeah, that was the real open opening. And there was one essay that had been written in 1970 by Professor Margaret Plant on Centre 5, and that was pretty much it. Um, then there were books on each of the seven individual sculptors in the group. Yep. Um, and uh, so what, there was quite is, a lot done on them as individuals, but not as a group. Right. Yeah. But what, 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 what does it mean? Yeah, you know, like Centre Five. What 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 does, what does it, mean? it mean? So Centre Five was the name that these seven sculptors chose to exhibit together under, and it, it related to the fact that they had a, a five point program of aims um, of what ah, they wanted to achieve okay. as a group. Yep. So it wasn't the number of sculptors because in the group. I thought it was to begin with, and yep. then all of a sudden you start looking. You go, hold on, there's, there's seven a sculptors. few more. <laughs> well, ironically, um, the, the the man who uh, was responsible for for bringing the group together, a Hungarian emigre by the name of Julius Kane. Uh, sadly, he took his own life only oh. about six months after forming the group. So then they were down to six. And then the youngest member of the group, Norma Redpath, who was Melbourne-born, um, was increasingly occupied with these major commissions that saw her working in a studio in Milan for most of the Whoa. year round. Whoa. So she actually withdrew from the group in mid-1964. Um, so she was really only with them for two years as well. Right. Two and a half years. So then they were down to five. <laughs> so the Centre Five did ironically end up with five members, right. but they began with seven. And what were the five mm. points, mm. Uh, just briefly? Yeah, so the first point was to what they called bridge the gap between art and life. Um, and by that, that's a really sort of avant-garde call. You know, they were very consciously echoing uh, you know, pre-World War One avant-gardes that wanted to to sort of eradicate that um, that real lack of communication between artist and public, okay? Um, so to bridge the gap between art and life. And they wanted to do that through not just exhibitions, but through, you know, education, through public lectures, through interviews on the radio, in the newspaper, on television. Um, now I should have actually memorised their five points. So they also wanted to um, see um, state um, institutions, state museums really exhibiting contemporary yep. Australian sculpture. Yep. Um, they wanted more scholarships available for young sculpture student, uh, uh, students and more prizes available for sculptors because a lot, there of, a lot of the big prizes, yeah. you know, you think such as the Archibald, for instance, mm. At that point, at 1960, that was they were really all dedicated to painters. Mm. There weren't many opportunities for sculptors. Um, even you know the Blake Prize for religious art it started, I think, in 51, uh, was originally only for painters, and the sculptors really had to push to say, "Hey, we can produce religious art too." You know, can we please enter the exhibit? You know, your prize. So there, it was always a bit of an uphill battle for the sculptors. Um, and I think their fifth and final point was uh, to 
see a percent for art scheme implemented. So major public building programs, um, projects should have a percentage put aside for public commissions. Right, okay, for the, the courtyard area at exactly. the front. Or, exactly, yeah. or any sort of art that could be integrated with the building. Yep. The sculptors were also very aware that their skills are so closely allied with the skills of architects. Yep. And that they can work in collaboration with architects and they can come up with sort of creative solutions to architectural problems. Mm. Um, yeah, so they really wanted architects to, to, to work more closely yeah. with them. And did it work? You know, like, you know, it's, we, you know they're, they're names that we know a lot and they're still yeah. around. Yeah. So it obviously did. But, you know, like... How, how much impact did they have? Yeah, it's, it's a, there's no simple yes or no, did it work answer. Yeah. Um, I would argue that yes, it worked. And then there's some caveats. So for each of those seven sculptors, they certainly, it was a struggle for each of them to, to really achieve sufficient commissions to, you know, put food on the table. Yep. Um, nevertheless, they sort of, they, laid the groundwork, as it were, for a, a later generation. Um, so insisting on things like contracts that were drawn up with the artist's interests in mind um, and that would stipulate when payment would be made and not, right. not expect the sculptors to pay for the whole thing out of their pocket yeah, and yeah, then be reimbursed yeah, yeah. a year later. And transporting. Transportation, well. yeah. exactly. Um, reading through the sculptor's diaries, it's interesting following all those um, details of the, the trouble. So an architect might approach them and say, oh, would you like to design this for this project? The sculptor might, you know, agree verbally and be asked, can you show me what, what you have in mind? So they have to then produce a maquette, a little working model, or at very least some working drawings, all of which take their time and mm. effort. Mm. And sometimes they weren't paid for those. Um, sometimes they, they were, but it was always a scrabble to try and yeah, be yeah. reimbursed for their troubles. Um, in in certain circumstances, they might it might be a case of over three years of negotiations with mm. the client and the architect and all the the models that they've produced. And at the end, the client changes their mind Ooh. and the whole project's called yeah, off. And yeah. those kind of frustrations. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's unfortunately the the world of a, an artist, though, isn't it? Um, you know, like and especially a sculptor, because it is a tough world, isn't it? Yes, it was tough then and it is still tough. Still tough, yeah. Um, I suppose I would say they were successful, Centre 5, in that they highlighted all of those yes. issues that yes. they faced um, and they were part of a, a, a broad shift to saying, actually, we need to formalise this process and have a contract that outlines mm. what's expected mm. of all parties yeah. um, and not just expect the artist to produce yeah. pro bono mm. continually. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of, of the day, did uh, some of them make money? Um, a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, uh, Clifford last um, remained on his own all his life, so he didn't have a family to, to support. And when he died, he left his entire estate to um, the Lucius Trust in London, which was a sort of um, religious group or spiritual group. He was subscribed to all of their, their literature and, you know, they espouse like daily meditation and vegetarianism, for instance. So uh, I think because he was on his own largely, he was able to um, 
to do all right. Uh, those who were supporting families found it a little bit more of a struggle. Um, they all, ha- all had to teach, uh, yeah. and that was that yeah. was the main issue. That you know, um, sometimes the teaching would take over from their own private studio time or their ability to do, to do commissions. So, yeah. teaching was really how most of them kept their yeah. head above water. And and also the fact is that you know like you have to have a warehouse. You yes. know, so it's not. Not just you know painting in your bedroom or a back room, uh, you have to pay for a space to to work. Yeah, um, only one of the seven actually had that warehouse space, and that was Vincus Humantus from Lithuania, and he shared a studio down in in Cheltenham with Leonard French, the painter. Ah, okay. Um, and it's it's interesting because quite independently their work is is obviously both about sort of symbolic abstraction and they were both already working that way before they piled up and shared this studio space but the others all worked primarily from home oh, so they okay. had home studios yeah. they're certainly very far from a uh, from a warehouse they yeah. would all have a studio in the backyard yep. not much larger than your average garden shed really yeah. um inga king um lived with her husband was graham king the painter printmaker their whole house in warrandyte was designed around their studios wow um that was sort of an integral part of their their living and working space yeah yeah Yeah. uh so what can we expect when Mm. we we go to see this exhibition and where is it all right so the uh, exhibition is it outside inside so the exhibition um is actually across the entire space of mcclellan so it occupies um all of the gallery interior gallery spaces but it also takes in the fact that a lot of the works uh, permanently sited in the sculpture park at McClelland. And for those of your listeners who aren't don't know, McClelland is in Langwarren, just outside Frankston. Yep. So a lot of the permanent works are actually also by Centre 5 members. So um, from the gallery desk, you can p- pick up a, a little walking trail that highlights too, which works yeah. are by Centre 5 yeah. and which works are from the period because yep. um, all of the sculptors, you know, were active over a long period. Yep. So the exhibition really focuses on just the decade when they were most active. So from... 1962 when they first formed January 62 through to 1973 and in 73 there was their sort of final hurrah an exhibition as a group that was held at both Geelong Gallery and then moved to McClelland so sort of appropriately enough right. <laughs> their last exhibition, exhibition was at McClelland right and um, still alive any uh, no sadly so oh. when I first started studying the group and started in 2009, the only remaining members were Inga King, um, the Berliner, and, and Norma Redpath. So I was very, very fortunate to work with both of them um, and have full access to their studios. Um, and the others I've had to rely on um, the memories of their family members, and um, most of them recorded interviews over the years. Uh, I think the only sculptor I never heard an interview with was um, Julius Kane, who sadly, as I said, died in 1962. Um, nevertheless, in the process of the PhD, I did come across a very rare interview he gave in Canada in 1961 with a man who later became a very famous historian in Canada, but who was then just a student reporter for the student newspaper at the uh, Toronto uh, College of the Arts and uh, uh, Ontario College of Arts. So, um, yeah, so I've managed to get bits and pieces to hear their voices, as it were. 
um, and drew on lots of different archives. Yeah. So the Centre 5 archive is held at the National Gallery of Victoria in their research library. That in itself took over a year to locate. It was it was missing. I knew it had been donated because Inga was wringing her hand saying, oh, I, I gave it to the NGV. They should have it. <laughs> it turned up eventually underneath a, a curator's desk Whoa. whose name oh. will, shall Whoa. remain un, unnamed, but um, he was very apologetic. Um, anyway, so that was terrific. So we got it properly accessioned and catalogued yep. and it's been terrifically useful right. for this exhibition. In fact, we've got a number of items from the archive right. in the exhibition. Okay. Um, and then the sculptor's individual archives. So some of them are in public collections, yep. some are still in private hands. And ha- have you done a, a catalogue? Yes, there is there is an extensive catalogue. Um, it was interesting writing the catalogue because it was my first opportunity, I suppose, to really write about the activities of Centre 5 um, because my... The PhD I did at the University of Melbourne was a prehistory of the group that looked at the origins of their philosophy as a, as sculptors. Um, whereas this exhibition really allowed me to finally present in quite dare I say forensic detail all of their activities, um, drawing on that archival material. So yeah, um, brilliant. Yeah, and we've got I mean the exhibition itself. In terms of to go back to your earlier question, what to expect as well as the actual works from the 60s and some earlier pieces from the 50s in the case of Julius Cain and Tessuta Sicarus, where they were both um, probably more active in the 50s than in the 60s. We've also got photographs, um, black and white photos of examples of um, collaboration with architects. And a lot of those works uh, would be still well-known to your listeners today, um, perhaps the best known being Inga King's forward surge on the, the Arts Centre lawn outside the Lo- Melbourne Arts Centre. I've always loved that. Fabulous. It's so, so yeah. fabulous. Yeah. It is fantastic. Yeah. I think Richard, Sarah, eat your heart out when I see that, when I see the skateboarders go up. She used to love the skateboarders using that piece, yeah. by the way. Oh. And so, I yeah. also loved mm. it that during um, the, the Commonwealth Games the last time they were here, uh, she, because they created that as a, a beach scene, so that people could go at lunchtime and take their shoes and socks off, and 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 they painted them blue because yep. they were yep. waves, and yep. and and she went, yep, do yep. it. Yeah. She was look. Her whole philosophy was that sculpture should be part of the community and to be used, yep. and you know, if it gives people a smile to paint it blue, then paint it blue. Mm. Um, there's another big piece at Melbourne University called Sun Rings, and at one point the students wrapped it in aluminium foil she thought that was hilarious <laughs> and funny enough that sort of predated by about 30 years her her final series of works the celestial rings which were in polished um stainless steel brushed stainless steel and they were sort of interlocking rings relating to her her ideas about the constellations and um the skies and so funnily enough her sun ribbon when it was wrapped in foil actually almost preempted that by wow. a few decades fantastic oh, yeah. mm. well thank you so much for coming in and explain and thank you for um you know like putting this um exhibition uh, together fantastic can't wait to see it uh where's it on it again so it's on at mcclellan gallery Langwarren. um so just under an hour's drive yep. from um from Melbourne, and yeah, it's well worth making the day mm. trip down there. The um, the sculpture and park itself is stunning. It's a beautiful walk. Yeah, a yep. beautiful walk around. Fabulous yep. cafe. Yeah. you can make a day trip of it. It's just yep. a lovely spot to come and visit. And um, 
yeah, it's look, it's a really it's a rare opportunity to see these works together. The last time there was any Centre Five show was in 1984. Whoa. I was a child, so um, there you go. It's, you know, these things don't yeah. happen very often that you get these good historic shows Brilliant. pulled together. Brilliant, mm. thank you. And mm. it runs until till March third. Right. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Dr. Jane Eckert here on Joy 94.9, Sunday Arts Magazine. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community radio station, Joy 94.9. For more podcasts or to support Joy by becoming a member, donating or subscribing, head to joy.org.au. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.